Parshas Ekev opens up with a very clear description of what will happen when you enter the land of Eretz Yisrael. Shem says, when you'll enter the land, you'll enjoy prosperity and abundance, you'll build beautiful homes, your crops and livestock will increase, you'll amass gold and silver, everything that you'll engage in will flourish. And then the Pesach says, you'll say in your heart, it is my strength and the might of my arm that made this wealth. And the Torah says, don't say that. Remember, remember Hashem your God. Remember that it's Hashem who gave you the strength, who gave you the capacity, who gave you the ability to gain this wealth. And this is something that unfortunately we're very familiar with. Historically, one of man's greatest shortcomings has been taking credit for God's work. The minute a man finds success, and the minute he finds his wealth increasing, the minute he finds his power and influence starting to gain strength, he becomes very full of himself, and he becomes very self-assured. It's my wisdom, my strength, my capacity. And the Torah is warning us, remember, it's Hashem who gave the koach l'asaschayel. Remember, it's Hashem who gave you the strength to accomplish all of this. And that seems to be a rather straightforward Musr lesson and a very important concept, certainly as we come close to Rosh Hashanah, remembering that it's Hashem who created the world, Hashem who runs the world, and all of my successes, whatever I may do, whatever I may accomplish, I have to understand that it's all from Hashem, everything comes from my Creator. And all would be fine and well, except for the Targum Unkelis' explanation of the Pasuk. You see, when the Pasuk says, Ki hu remember that it's Hashem who gives you the strength to do this, the Targum translates that, Hu Remember that it's Hashem who gave you the wisdom to buy that merchandise. Don't think it's your wisdom. And don't think it's your acumen. Remember it's Hashem who put that thought in your mind. Remember it's Hashem who gave you the wisdom to buy that type of merchandise. Now, that's a very interesting concept except for one major problem. Targum, which was written by Unkelis, and was written with Ruach HaKodesh and has one task, to define as properly as possible the inner depth of the Torah. The reason why Targum is so reliable and so tremendous is because to take the inner depth of the Torah and to translate it into words which then Aramaic was spoken by the common man required vast understanding of Torah and vast tremendous siyat rishmaya. And when Targum defines something, he's defining the essence of the Pasuk. The problem is, it seems that he's limiting the Pasuk dramatically. The Torah says, don't think it's your strength. It's God who gave you the power. God who get, When your crops start increasing, and when your livestock start building, don't think it's you, it's God. Why does the Targum limit it to saying, it's God who put the thought into your mind? You know, it's true, that may be also true, but Hashem also created the world, Hashem also runs the world, Hashem also is the one who keeps everything in existence and maintains everything. Why is Targum limiting the Pshat? The simple reading of the Pasuk is, remember that it's Hashem who created and runs the world. Everything is God. Yet the Targum defines the words, remember that it's Hashem who gave you the Eitzah, who gave you the advice, who put the thought in your head to buy that merchandise. The question is, it seems very, very limiting. The question is, why is the Targum so limiting Pshat in the Pasuk? And, And to understand the answer to this question, I'd like to focus on a very interesting observation. One of the brachas that we make should be rather perplexing. 
on a very regular basis, we say, Baruch Atashem, blessed be you, God, Elokeinu, our God, Melech HaOlam, King of the Universe, Hamotzi Lechem Min HaOritz. You take bread out of the ground. Now that bracha should be rather, rather troubling. Because let's be honest, I buy my bread at Zisha's bakery. Zisha buys his flour from a flour distributor. That flour distributor purchases it from a warehouse, purchases it from a master distributor, who buys it from a farmer's co-op, who buys it from Joe the farmer out in Idaho. What does God have to do with that? Hamotzi lechem in ours, God brings bread forth from the ground, is not accurate at all. Number one, there are many, many people, multiple steps involved, and certainly it's not bread from the ground, and it's certainly not Hashem, it's Zisha's, it's a flour distributor, it's a warehouse, master distributor, farmer's co-op, all the way down the line. And if you think about this, it's not such a small question. We say in benching regularly, Hazanes Olam Kula Betuvo, Hashem, you're the one who feeds the entire world. Who knows saying Lechem L'chobasa, you give bread to every human being, but more than that, Kyo Kelzan Umefarnes Lakol. Hashem, it's not just human beings, every animal in the wild, Every insect, every fish, everything that exists in the world is kept alive by you. And it's a major proclamation of faith, but I believe it requires a tremendous amount of understanding. And to understand that, I think what I'd like to do is spend a little while focusing on things that we don't normally focus on, and that is the incredibly complex world that we live in. We live in a world that is so vast and so complex that it's often hard to even envision or imagine the vastness, the complexity, and harmonious systems involved. Let's start with something that we know as the food chain. There are so many different aspects of a complicated, intricate food web, but there's one part of it that's often forgotten. At the very base of the food web is the insect world. And the insect world is a vital part of the entire ecosystem, and it serves so many needs and so many functions that it would be very, very difficult for life to continue if not for this vast insect world. Human beings now have measured some 10 million species of insects, and let's just study a few of the features and contributions that insects make to our world. Let's take a good example. If you go on a summer's day and it starts pouring rain, pouring, pouring rain, you'll notice that the rain doesn't puddle. The rain is absorbed into the ground and sinks deeply into the roots and is absorbed by the roots deep down in the ground. Whether it's a corn stalk or an oak tree, the roots go down sometimes 50, sometimes 100 feet, and somehow it is that the rain doesn't just puddle on top but trickles down all the way to the roots 50 feet, 100 feet down. And here's the question, how does that rain trickle down through the ground? And the answer really was provided to us by none other than Charles Darwin. Now, in the end, Charles Darwin was inaccurate, but he estimated that if you look at an acre that supports X amount of sheep, let's say you can graze 50 sheep on an acre, he says the amount of aphids and earthworms that are swarming in the earth underneath that acre will weigh about the same as those sheep. Now, again, his accuracy is very debatable, but here's the point. All day long, there's huge swarms of aphids, earthworms, and various insects that are tunneling throughout the dirt, 
tunneling, tunneling throughout the layers and layers of dirt. And when you dig up on a rainy day, you'll see all of these earthworms, aphids, etc. And what they're doing is a very interesting thing. They're making the ground porous. If you take a sponge and you have a dry sponge and you hold it under your kitchen sink, it's quickly going to absorb the water and get very heavy because the water trickles into all those tiny little tunnels in the sponge and the sponge holds a tremendous amount of water. The ground effectively is similar to the sponge because all day long these aphids and earthworms are tunneling and making tunnels and tunnels so that when the raindrops hit the dirt, they don't puddle on the top creating just floods but rather they trickle down through these incredibly complex tunnels, billions and trillions of tunnels, all the way down to the roots of the tree, to the roots of the corn, to the roots of the plants. And we have an inhabitable planet because there's a swarm of insects that are populating the earth, that are making the earth fertile, that are continuing things. But what's even more interesting is that the insects are the base of the food chain. Without insects, birds, very small animals, the base of the food chain is the insects. And because insects provide such an important role, Hashem made them very, very robust. There are 500 species of ants, 5,000 species of cockroaches. Why you need so many beetles, I'm not sure, but here's the point. They replicate, they duplicate, they should be swarms and swarms, and in a very short amount of time, the entire earth should be overrun by insects. They're so multiple, there's so many species, and they multiply so quickly that the entire earth should be swarmed by insects. However, there are a number of things that take care of that problem. Number one, birds eat an awful lot of insects. Number two, bats, but probably one of the greatest predators of insects is something known as the spider. Now, the spider is a very, very interesting little insect. The spider, most orb-weaving spiders typically are blind, and they'll create a orb, they'll create a web, and they catch insects by the dozens, by the hundreds, and they keep a large part of keeping the population of the insects under control is done by the spider. But if you study how the spider does its job, it's fascinating. The spider will, in, in the late e- evening, come out when it's already dark, and he starts throwing out his anchor, starts throwing out three or four different anchor threads, and then he starts weaving his orb. A typical orb weaver will create a very, very interesting geometric shape. Now you have to understand, the job of the insect is to catch as many spiders. The spider's job is to catch as many insects as he can. But here's the great challenge. You see, when he's spinning this web, it has to be, it can't be too thick, because otherwise the wind is going to blow it down. On the other hand, it has to be very small, because it's got to catch very small spiders, mosquitoes, insects, various things, so it has to be very small. It happens to be that the orb weaver weaves the perfect geometric shape that allows it to create very little wind resistance, but fills an entire area. And if you watch the way it does it, it's very, very clever. If you've ever seen a bicycle, there are spokes on the bicycle that all go toward the center. The spider will create many, many spokes towards the center. And then around the center, he'll start spinning circles. So you have spokes, spokes, spokes coming all the way to the center. And then he starts making circles around, 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 around. Now, what happens is that the moth or the hornet or the fly comes by, gets caught in the 
in the spider's web and in the spider has dinner. But what's fascinating to note is that the spider sits in the center of the orb and the spider's blind. Yet it can tell based on the vibrations of the spider web what type of insect has landed. Hornets are devastating to spiders. When a hornet lands in the spider web, the spider very cautiously starts crawling up behind the hornet, throws out a silk thread, and starts wrapping the hornet, the hornet's stuck, and starts wrapping and wrapping, and only when the hornet is fully, fully encased in a cocoon, then the spider goes in, sucks out the juice of the hornet, and has dinner. If it's a moth or a fly, the spider instantly knows where it is, what type of insect it is, and pounces immediately on it, puts its venom into the moth, and sucks out the juice. Instantly it knows what type of insect, where it fell. But here's the interesting question. How in the world does a little spider catch a big hornet or big moth or insects that are far larger than it? And you have to study this spider web to appreciate the wonder of this entity. You see, the spider web, the circle parts that go around and around are covered with glue. But not indiscriminately, like little beads, almost like beads on a necklace, the spider will go and put bead after bead after bead only on the circular parts. You see, the spider climbs on the spokes. He walks up and down on the spokes. On the spokes, there's no glue, because <clears throat> he would get stuck. But only on the circular part, he puts beads and beads and beads on these little circular parts, so that <clears throat> when the wasp or the hornet gets <clears throat> pushes against it, suddenly its wings or its legs get into this gooey stuff, and <clears throat> it can't get out. Now... Here's the most amazing part. If you think about it, the hornet is a very large insect. And that little bit of glue, I don't know how much tack it has, but it can't has to stay moist for hours. It can't be that tacky. How does it stop the hornet from getting away? And why doesn't the hornet just fly away and just break away from it? How much glue? Imagine you stuck your, your foot into a pot of glue. You step away and walk away, clean yourself off and go further. The reason why the hornet or the wasp cannot do it is because the spider web itself is so flexible. So what happens is the leg or the wing gets touches some of the glue, and, a, and the hornet tries to pull away. But it pulls the entire web with it. It can't create enough tension. Why? Because the spider web is so flexible that whenever the hornet moves, it pulls the web with it. Now here's the amazing part. Stronger than anything that any human being has ever created is the spider web. Man cannot even envision creating such a powerful, durable bond. They say if you take a one-inch thick spider web, it could stop a fully loaded 747 in mid-flight. It's the strongest substance known to mankind. Yet so flexible that when the hornet tries to pull away, it can't break the glue because the hornet pulls the spider web with it. And it's a rather interesting thing. Because the spider spins that web, the perfect geometric design, not to cause too much wind resistance, but enough to create a very tight mesh. It knows how to put exactly the glue where and when. It knows how to sit in the center. It knows how to find its, its keep. But here's the interesting thing. Not every bug ends up being the spider's dinner. There's one bug called the squash bug, or some, sometimes called the stink bug, that has a very interesting defense against this um, the spider. You see, when the squash, squash bug gets caught in the spider's web, it waits. It waits until the spider comes close, and then it lets out a noxious spray 
and it gets right into the spider's eyes, into its mouth, and the spider recoils, and he starts <clears throat> regurgitating, vomiting. The spider is put into a tizzy, and has to clean himself off. In the meantime, the swashbug does something very interesting. He starts licking his legs and his arms, and he starts applying it to the glue. But make no mistake, the saliva doesn't isn't a solvent for the glue. What the saliva does is makes the normally flexible spiderweb brittle. The flexibility of it is a chemical <clears throat> process. It changes the chemical process such that the spiderweb becomes brittle, so that then when the squash bug tries to pull its leg away, the brittle and now spiderweb breaks, and the squash bug is easily able to get away. Now, do you know the chemical proposition of a spiderweb? Do you know the composition of the solvent to create it brittle or flexible? Have you ever given an IQ test to a squash bug or to a spider? And when you look at any facet of this world and you see the complexity, the vast harmonious systems, the incredible complexity, you have to say the words, this is astonishing. And this is beyond belief. This is beyond anything that any human being could ever imagine, let alone invent. And who taught the spider to do that? Scientists now have experimented. And they take the eggs of the spider and take it away. Any mother spider, without any social contact with any other spider, they feed the egg, the egg grows up, eventually becomes a spider, they release the spider, and the spider begins spinning the perfect geometric shape, knows how to bead the glue, knows how to create the anchors, knows exactly when to place it where. And when you study this, you say this is astonishing beyond belief. This is beyond description. Now, for the record, how did I find out some of this information? Because I read a book called For the Love of Insects by Thomas Eisner. Thomas Eisner is a man who spent 50 years studying insects, a scientist and a very bright fellow. Now, he climbed into this world, and you would imagine that he was a mammoth of extraordinary proportions. He sees God's wonder. He sees such complexity. He sees the brilliance of our Creator. Surely he was a great mammon, and yet he wasn't. He wasn't at all. And here's the question. How is it possible that he wasn't moved? And more than that, how is it possible that we're not astounded? How is it possible that we can study this and not fall on our face and say, Hashem, Elohim, Hashem, you're God, you're great, you're amazing. I, I, I don't have words to describe the awesomeness of your creation. Why is it that we're not wowed by it? And the answer is that it's consistent and constant. And the Ramban explains that that is exactly the test of Teva. And Teva, nature, is Hashem's consistent and constant approach to running the world. Hashem created the world in a way that it's consistent and constant. Gases tend to expand. Heat tends to rise. Heavy objects tend to fall. Anywhere in the universe, wherever it may be, these are consistent laws, consistent rules, and you're watching Hashem behind the scenes running the world, controlling everything in a consistent, constant way, and as a result, everything is camouflage. Because it's consistent, because it happened yesterday, happened the day before, it becomes nature and it becomes natural, and it's just another part of the natural world, and it doesn't wow us. But it doesn't wow us for a very simple reason. And the very simple reason is that's nature. And that's why Hashem always runs the world. And Hashem doesn't veer off of nature, because if Hashem did, we would lose free will. 
we would lose Bechira. Imagine for a minute, the minute you put on tzitzit, suddenly gold coins appeared in your pocket. And the minute you made a bracha, suddenly the food multiplied on your plate. Obviously, there would be no free will. Hashem hides behind nature for a very simple reason, so that we can be challenged, so that we can actually have free will, so that we can have Bechira. But here's the great dilemma. If Hashem hides behind nature, and Hashem always acts in a consistent, constant manner, that means Hashem doesn't change nature. If so, how do we daven? We're not allowed to daven for overt miracles, and we're not allowed to daven for Hashem to change nature, yet we're davening all the time. If I'm sick, Hashem, please heal me. If I have trouble earning a living, Hashem, I need a parnasa. If I need help with my children, Hashem, please help. But we know Hashem doesn't change nature. Hashem won't bring miracles. How can I daven if I accept the fact that Hashem runs the world in a derech teva in a natural manner? How could I daven? And the answer to this question really is understanding that the vast majority of Hashem's intervention in our world is in the mind of man. The vast, vast majority of Hashem's ashkacha pratis is in putting people's, putting thoughts into people's heads, whether it be my head or someone else's head, the fact that you go for a job and the guy has a very favorable impression of you, or the fact that you go to create a new client and you're working very hard and something happens that he just, I don't know, he doesn't trust you. Hashem puts thoughts into people's minds and the vast, vast majority of our hashkacha is exactly in that way. And if you'd like to see what this means, just compare yourself to a very, very successful person. We all have it. There's got to be at least one person that you've come into contact with who is tremendously, tremendously successful. And here's the odd part. Very likely, he's not more clever than you, not brighter than you, and not smarter than you. He went into business and you went into business. He chose real estate and you chose real estate. He decided to buy houses and you decided to buy houses. And somehow it is, he's successful beyond belief. And somehow it is, you're not. And when you do this comparison, you'll find something very, very incredibly interesting. He did the same thing you did, but for some reason the bank accepted his proposal, didn't accept yours. And that client liked that proposal, it didn't like yours. And that person he hired was very, very successful, the person you hired failed. And I'll share with you a very interesting story because I got to see this very much upfront and personal. I was a high school rabbi for 15 years, and it meant I dealt with 15 cohorts of guys. And I got to see guys very close in life, and I got to create very real relationships. And it's been a number of years now, and I got to watch the guys grow up and take their place in the world. And I found that very often, it was a regular guy in the shear. Nothing unique about him, nothing special, and he became a phenomenal success. Phenomenal success financially. Another guy had all the talent, all the ability, barely able to earn a living. And the people who you think would have tremendous success didn't. People you thought regular did and made very little sense. I'll share with you one example because I think it's very telling. The fellow who had been in my shear told me the following story. He became a nursing home administrator, and his father brought him into a deal. There was a man who was looking to sell a nursing home. And there were four people who were going to be involved in buying the home. The four people met with the nursing home owner, and this fellow who did my shear and his father, and two other guys. Okay. And they're meeting, discussing back and forth, back and forth. 
At a certain point, the nursing home owner asked the other two guys to step outside and spoke to the fellow Ben Mashir and his father, and he said like this. He said, I, I wanted to tell you guys, I like you guys. I trust you guys. I want to sell you the home. Those guys, I don't like and I don't trust them. I don't want to deal with them. Here's the deal. I'm going to make you a great offer, but it's only for you guys. They're not involved. I want to make you the offer. I'll give you 10 minutes to make a decision. You're in or out. So his fellow and his father stepped outside, and the father said, well, we should do it, right? The son, son said, listen, come on, Dad. They brought us to the deal. If we cut them out, that's not nice. They brought us to the deal. How could we then underhand cut them and cut them out of the deal? It's not right. And they walked back in, and the father said to the nursing home owner, my son feels it's not ethical. They brought us in. We're not going to do the deal. The nursing home owner looks at the man and says, your son is a fool. He can't ever make a living. He's never going to succeed. If you don't accept this, you're a fool. They left, and in fact, this fellow lost his job as a nursing home owner because, as a nursing home administrator, because this nursing home owner was very powerful, and it got to the extent that he had to leave that state, and he had to go to another state to get a job. And he went to the other state, and interestingly enough, there was someone who offered him a home to buy. He bought that home. He very much he succeeded very quickly. Bought another home, another home. He now owns 50 nursing homes, one of the wealthiest Jews in that city. But here's the point. Don't make a mistake to think it's because he was so ethical, which he was. And it was a beautiful Kiddush Hashem that he didn't want to cut somebody out. But what you're looking at is Hashem running the world. Why is it that some people have a very easy time finding their Bashar, and some people have a very tough time? And why is it that some people have kids who are very successful? Because Hashem runs the world. But the vast, vast majority of the way that Hashem runs the world is by putting thoughts into people's heads, some people accept us, some people don't. Sometimes we have great ideas, sometimes we have terrible ideas. Sometimes we say, I'm going to buy that stock, it's a phenomenal idea. And sometimes I say, I'm not going to touch it. <clears throat> Understanding that the vast majority of that is a Shem running the world. Now my job is to use the world in the ways of the world. I have to be very responsible, I have to be very prudent, and I have to use my best judgment. And once I made my best judgment, I say, Hashem, I get it. According to my mind, according to my understanding, I asked advice, I consulted with others, this seems to be the best way, Hashem, I rely on you. And you're going to direct me, you're going to bring me the right way. If I'm supposed to have phenomenal success or mediocrity, Hashem, that's up to you. But I understand that it's Hashem guiding me, and every step of the way, Hashem is leading me on that path. But again, it's not going to be because of miracles happening in front of my eyes. And it's not going to be suddenly gold pouring out from the sky. It's going to be different people saying the right thing, saying the wrong thing, and different doors open up, different ideas are put into people's heads at the right time, and the vast, vast majority of Hashem running the world is in the thoughts of people. And when you understand this, you're able to see Hashem behind the scenes because you know where to find Him. If you want to know where to find Him, find Him in the thoughts of other people, in your own thoughts, it's that sudden glean in his eye, that sudden distasteful. You ever find that sometimes people just don't like you, and sometimes you're so well accepted. Sometimes you can't help but say the wrong thing, and sometimes you can't help but say the right thing. And I have one more step I think is very important over here. I want you to imagine a simple farmer. He's standing out of his field looking out, it's about time for the harvest, and he sees rows and rows of ripe corn standing tall, stretching as far as the eye can see. He feels joy in his heart as he revels in the abundance and plenty. Ah, a bumper crop. And then he looks over to his neighbor's field, 
and he sees his neighbor's field meager, undergrown, spotty, and the farmer thinks to himself, dang fool that boy is. How many times did I tell him plant corn this year? The rains, the rains came late. Don't, don't tell him, don't plant wheat. The frost was still on the ground in April. Any man worth his salt knows that we can't grow no good that way. Corn, 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 I says to him. But as he listen, he doesn't listen to me. That farmer, as naive as he is, understands that he did not bring the rain. It was not his brilliance that stopped the blight or the pestilence. And he can't take credit for the corn growing tall. But there is one area that he can take credit for. My wisdom. I planted corn and not wheat. I told that dang fool to not to plant wheat, corn. Any man who's got wisdom knows corn, 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 the thing. And I think that's exactly the answer to the Targum. And this was a Dordea. And this was a generation that heard Hashem say, Anochi Hashem Lokecha. They lived in the Midbar. And they lived in the 40 years they lived with the Torah right there. In no one's wildest imagination could they take credit for the fat crops. No one there could possibly say, it's my wisdom that made these cows or these sheep. But there is one area that they take credit for. It was my wisdom to decide to buy sheep and not cows. My wisdom to plant wheat and not corn. And my wisdom to buy this merchandise and that, not that merchandise. Says the Targum, no. Who on no sin remember, it's Hashem who put that thought into your mind. I bought that stock in that time. I bought real estate in the 80s or the 2000s. And it went up and I'm phenomenally wealthy. Who put that thought in your mind? Remember who on no sin Of course Hashem created the world. Of course Hashem runs the world. Of course everything in existence is Hashem keeping it there. But no fool is going to think to take credit for that. But we will take credit for my brilliance, my thought, my wisdom. Says the Targum, remember, he's the one who gave you the wisdom. He's the one who put that thought in your head. And if you'd like to understand how we say, Hamotzi Lechem in Aretz, you have to understand it's a very, very complex food chain. And any supply chain is very, very intricate. Just watch what happens, a little bit of COVID, and suddenly you can't get anything. And what you're looking at is a world that's vast and complex. And you're watching Hashem run the world behind the scenes and putting thoughts into people's minds, and running institutions, running organizations, making sure that things are doing what they're supposed to do, because it's an incredibly complex, vast world, and behind it all is Hashem guiding, leading, putting thoughts into this one's head, thoughts into this one's head, go into this area, create this trucking line, create this. And when I'm saying the words, Hamotzi Lechem in Aretz, I'm acknowledging that Hashem is the creator, maintainer, an orchestrator of the world. How does he orchestrate? I buy my bread from the bakery because Hashem orchestrates everything. The entire supply chain, the entire food chain, everything. But how does Hashem do it? Hashem doesn't bring miracles. Hashem doesn't bring bread from the sky. Hashem makes sure that people do what they're supposed to do. Organizations work. Companies work. And somehow they're successful. Somehow nations remain at peace. And somehow it is that governments work. And when you study a system that's functioning well, no one understands it's not by accident. No system this complex and this vast and this intricate runs on its own. There's a guide, and there's someone putting thoughts into this one's head, into this one's head, making sure that everything continues, and you're seeing your Creator. 
And this is a very, very important concept to understand on its base level because this is how we relate to Hashem, how we understand Hashem. And again, certainly as we come close to Rosh Hashanah, and we think about all of the issues that are being judged and being decided, and I understand that behind it all is Hashem putting thoughts into people's minds, arranging things, and that's a very, very important concept. But because we're dealing with very deep concepts in this year, I'd like to take this one level deeper. And let's understand how, in fact, it functions, how it is that Hashem speaks in our mind. So let me share with you a mushal. Imagine you have a multiplayer video game, whether it be Fortnite or some other game, and I'm sitting in my area, my computer playing, and you're sitting maybe in another city playing, and another guy over here, and we're all playing this multiplayer video game. Okay, very nice. So let's assume for a minute the goal of the game is to amass a lot of wealth. So I build a house, and I sell that house, I get some gold, I build some lumber, I sell some gold, you buy, you buy, etc. The game's going on and on. And suddenly imagine for a minute that I start amassing mounds and mounds of gold. Now you, in the other city, see my mounds of gold and you get very jealous. So you decide, that's not right. What, why should it be that he has such big piles of gold and you don't? And so you decide you're going to steal my gold. So you plot and plan how to reach into my pile of gold and take it. Well, here's the problem. The problem is you're never going to succeed. Why? Because this is a virtual game. It's in a platform. It's in a cloud. And what's happening is someone wrote the code. And if you can imagine that person who wrote the code is sitting watching the cloud. And if you're going to try to reach in, the code doesn't allow you to do that. Because it's not part, you can't reach into my pile of gold. Because the program was written in a way that doesn't allow for that. And the, the program or the one running the program sees what you're trying to do. Even if you could do it, he would prevent you. Because you're not really here in my house. You're in the cloud as I'm in the cloud functioning there. And the cloud is operated by someone, and someone wrote the code, and someone watches the game, and someone makes sure that only what's supposed to happen can happen. You cannot touch me. And this is a way to understand Hashem's involvement in the world, and a way to understand one of the basic concepts of Amuna. No human being can harm me, no human being can help me. Hashem is there running everything, Hashem is involved in everything. And much like that multiplayer game, you could dream, you could scheme, but you can't take the gold, you can't touch me. But if you think about the, some of the concepts we discussed last week and the week before, I think this concept becomes much, much clearer. Remember, any human creation is vastly different than Hashem's creation of the world. When I create a shack, I take objects that are in existence, I shuffle them around, I take some wood, I take some nails, I bang them together, and I created nothing. I reshuffled, reorganized, but I made nothing. And when Hashem made from absolute absence of anything something, Hashem was the mishave, the creator and the one who maintains everything in creation. And the way to understand this, we gave the marshal to the seagull. Imagine it's a cold night, and I'm standing at the bus stop, I'm shivering, I close my eyes, and imagine a beautiful beach scene, white sand, ocean blue, cloudless sky, and one lone seagull gently floats across the sky, the bus comes splash. Gone is the ocean blue, gone is the sand, gone is the seagull. I am the dreamer. As long as I think about the seagull, the seagull exists. And the minute I stop thinking about the seagull, <clears throat> gone is the seagull, gone is the sand, gone is the ocean blue. 
That is Hashem's relationship to everything in creation. Hashem is the creator and Mishav, the one who created and maintains everything. Unlike a human creation where I take something that's in existence, if I build a shack and leave it for 20 years, I expect it to still be there because I created nothing. I took objects that were in existence and moved them around. When Hashem created from nothing something, Hashem created and needs to maintain it and keep it in existence every moment of the of its existence. Now, with that being said, let's climb into the seagull and let's watch that mushal for a minute. So we mentioned last week, and imagine for a minute the following. Imagine that I say to the seagull, I want you to fly east. And the seagull says, Mm-mm, I want to fly west. I say, no, east. He says, no, west. No. East, west, east, west. Finally, I say, okay, you want to do it your way? Do it your way. Now, if you think about it, that cannot happen. It can't happen because the seagull only exists in my mind. I'm the creator of the seagull. I'm the creator of the bird, the wings, the beak, the brain, the mind. And there's no thought outside of my thinking. There's no concept of the seagull having its own volition, its own will, because I created the seagull, and therefore I created its mind as well. And any thought that it has only are thoughts that I put into it. It can't be that I say east and it says west, because unless there are two me's, unless I'm schizophrenic, there's just east. And this is one of the most difficult things for us human beings to ever really understand. And that is how Hashem create an entity with a das separate from Hashem's. And we're not going to deal with it at length this evening, but let's just suffice it to say that one of the most incredible features in creation is that Hashem created a separate das, a separate will, a separate volition, and gave you, him, and every other human being free will. But free will means your own agenda, your own issues, your own desires, and your own will. And as much as you'll study artificial intelligence, and as much as like people like to believe about there'll be computers one day who have their own will, it never will happen, and it can happen. Because you can't create an entity that has its own will unless you are the creator of the heavens and the earth. It is physically impossible, and it's one of the wonders of Hashem's creation. But watch something very, very astonishing. When Hashem created free will, that means let's go to the seagull. It's as if I said to the seagull, okay, Mr. Seagull, you can think your own thoughts. Even if I want you to think east, you can think west. When I grant him that thoughts, he's still thinking in the platform of my mind. I hear everything that he thinks because he only has that will and only has that mind because I granted it to him. And just as I keep him in constant existence, I keep his mind in constant existence. And it's only because I will it to be that he has will. And what that means is I hear every word that he thinks. Anything that he's thinking is right there in front of me. He's thinking in the platform of my mind. And when you understand that, you understand how Hashem knows our thoughts. There is nothing that exists outside of Hashem. Much like I to the seagull, Hashem is the creator and the one who keeps everything in existence. Hashem created the world and maintains it, and there's nothing that exists outside Hashem. Hashem is Mokkum, Hashem is the place, because everything in creation was created and is kept in existence by Hashem at all times. But it's not just a physical existence, not just my skin, my bone, my arms, my legs. My mind as well was created by Hashem. My will was created by Hashem, 
and my will is kept in existence constantly by Hashem, my mind, my thinking, me. And what that means in plain language is, I'm thinking in the platform of God. I'm thinking in Hashem's world. And Hashem hears me loud and clear. As we said last week, the last Pasuk we say at the end of every Shemar Nesrei, you l'ratzon imrei fi, let the words of my mouth find favor in your eyes, the hegun libi, and the thoughts of my heart. I don't have to speak out my words for Hashem to hear them. Hashem hears my thoughts as I'm thinking them, and because I'm thinking in the platform of Hashem. And because of that, now you can begin understanding your relationship to Hashem. It is very, very important to recognize one simple understanding. Hashem knows my thoughts as I'm thinking them. But even more than that, many, many times there'll be a voice in my head that might be me and might not be me. It might be Hashem speaking in my head, giving me an idea, leading me to something. And if you'd like to practice this, I have a very simple exercise. Start speaking to Hashem in your mind. You don't have to speak to Hashem with your lips. Hashem hears your thoughts as you're thinking them. This is a very effective thing that many times you're not allowed to daven, you're not allowed to speak out words in certain places. <clears throat> but you're allowed to think thoughts there. And <clears throat> if you're allowed to think thoughts in those places, you speak to Hashem in your heart, <clears throat> ask Hashem for help, ask Hashem <clears throat> to guide you, but get used to it. Get used to thinking thoughts in your heart and <clears throat> speaking to Hashem there because you begin to come to grips to the fact that Hashem is everywhere. But everywhere means every particle of physicality, any part of the cosmos, anywhere they may be, and even right here. But not just right here outside of me, and right here in my mind, I'm thinking in the platform of God, I'm thinking in Hashem's world, and when you understand that, you understand that Hashem is everywhere, literally, and you begin to understand Hashem's involvement in the world. I think that this targum is very, very important and eye-opening. And you're going to increase crops. You're going to have abundance and plenty. And you're going to say, The strength of my hand. Says the Pasuk, no, remember it's Hashem. Hashem no sin says the targum, remember, He gave you the Eitzah. He gave you the advice. Why did the targum say He gave you the advice? Because that's the vast, vast majority of Hashem's involvement in the world. Again, when we look at this world, we see an incredible world. We see butterflies, we see spiders, we see food webs, we see a world that's so incredibly vast and so complex, we're not moved by it. Why? Because it's constant and consistent. And Hashem always runs the world that way. And Hashem won't veer off it because, again, if Hashem brought open miracles all the time, there'd be no free will. So then how do we daven? And we daven because we understand that Hashem runs the world. How does Hashem run the world? The vast majority of that is behind the scenes, putting thoughts into people's minds, making sure that things happen the way they're supposed to happen, because Hashem is the platform of everything. And much like that multiplayer video game, I can't steal your gold, you can't steal my gold, because we're working in the cloud. There's no real gold. It's working in the cloud. Hashem is the cloud. Hashem is everything, and it means you and I think in Hashem's platform, and we exist in Hashem's platform. Nothing can violate Hashem's will. No human being can harm another human being. No human being can help another human being unless Hashem wills it to be. And, but even more than that, your thoughts themselves are in the platform of Hashem. And number one, that means Hashem knows exactly what I'm thinking as I'm thinking. And number two, many, many times Hashem puts thoughts into your, into your head. Again, we have to do our part. We have to use the world in the ways of the world. 
But when we do that, and then we understand that Hashem, it's up to you. I trust that you're going to lead this properly, and you're going to lead me on the right way for good or for bad. You know better than I. I know you love me more than I love me. I know you know better than I what's my best. I take my heavy load, I transfer to you, and I rely on you.